right, good morning again. Before we jump into the passage this morning, uh, the way we always begin is we begin with our young ones. Young ones, if I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what the passage in the Bible that we're going to read this morning, what it's about, and then what the uh, sermon's going to be about, okay? So uh, there's this uh, story about a, uh, an old, uh, very, very wealthy lady who lives on top of a mountain, uh, and uh, she uh, lives in this palace uh, up this very, very steep mountain, and she needs a new driver. She needs a new carriage driver. So uh, she's out uh, looking for, she's taking applications for people to ride her up the mountain and back down the mountain, and this is what she says to everyone that comes to, everybody wants to be uh, this wealthy lady's uh, driver because she's very generous, uh, and she's super wealthy, and if you work for her, you're going to have a great life. So um, this is what she tells everyone who comes, like, I'll be your driver, I'll be your driver. She says, okay, you're going to take me up the mountain and down the mountain, and I want to see how close you come to the edge. There's this, re- you know, up the mountain, down the steep mountain, there's this dangerous, windy path all the way up and all the way down. And so all these drivers go up and down the mountain with, with the prosperous, rich, wealthy lady, and they are, I mean, don't do, don't do, I'm not even going to do this. Imagine like that's the edge, right? Okay, and they're getting as close as they can to the edge all the way up and all the way down, and they all fail. I mean, some are like so close, they're like slipping off the edge and then like getting the carriage back on. They all fail the test. The driver who wins the test is the one who stays as far away from the edge as possible and follows the path the way you're supposed to follow the path. All the other drivers, when she said, I want to see how close you come to the edge, she wasn't saying, get to the edge. She was saying, I want to see how dangerous you are. I want to see if you push the boundaries. Now, the, like, it's a true story. I can't remember... Um, the lady was. Uh, but here's the point. Here's the point is we can think about Jesus and we can think about this life and we, th- we can think about like, how can I, can I love Jesus and can I push the boundaries? How much can I push the boundaries and how much can I ride the edge of life uh, and, and get away with it? And, and, you know, I still love Jesus. And it's this thing, young ones, this thing of, can I love Jesus and can I really kind of just do, uh, how much of what I want to do can I do without Jesus? How much can I push the boundaries of my life and what I want to do, and I'll love Jesus too? And here's the point. Loving Jesus and pushing the boundaries of what he wants us to do in this life is not really loving Jesus. That is loving death. That's actually loving sin, Loving Jesus looks like, what Jesus is going to tell us today is loving Jesus looks like following Jesus. It looks like us working and striving to be with Jesus and to be the kind of people Jesus wants to be and to do the kind of things Jesus wants us to do, which is to love him and to love others. Loving Jesus looks like loving the one who loved you even when you were not worthy of his love. And you need to know that. Like you, by yourself, you're not worthy of Jesus. Like, we don't earn Jesus' love because we're not good by ourselves. What we deserve is, we actually deserve to go off that cliff because of our sin, because of the bad we have done. The amazingness of Jesus' love is he loves you 
even though you don't earn his love. That is grace. That's gracious love. And our loving Jesus is loving the one who loved us so much, even when we didn't deserve it. He loved us so much, he took that death. And not just death, death, death. He went over that edge in order to save you and to give you life. So when you're thinking about how do I love Jesus, think this, how much better is Jesus in the life that he gives than death, than sin? Love the young ones, Jesus is better. And that's what he's going to be telling us today in this Sermon on the Mount that we are in, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we, uh, we're coming back to our series here. Uh, we're, we're, we're still just really at the beginning of uh, this Gospel of Matthew, but we're really focusing on the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're now at that point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving us these commands for living, for holy living. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Let's see. Where are... There it is. My notes. Here we go. Uh, Beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And that's where we will end this morning. uh, And we're going to come back to the rest of those verses next time. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, so what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount gives us the context, a passage that we didn't read, but it gives us the context to understand what Jesus is saying here and what he is not saying here. We've got to hold on to, you know, this. we're taking this one sermon in chunks. We've got to hold on to the whole thing. So when he says, you have heard it said, he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. And he, he's not contradicting the Old Testament. Like, like uh, you know, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, well, that was wrong. He's, that's not what he's saying. And he's not adding some correction to the Old Testament law as if the New Covenant and Old Covenant had different standards of holiness. No. What's, what he's doing is he's correcting the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament by the Pharisees who are there, and they're listening, and how they have misapplied it, how they've misinterpreted it, how they've misapplied it. He's contradicting their bad, false teaching. So Jesus says, you have heard the Old Testament law, do not commit adultery. Yes, and I'm telling you, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've already broken that commandment and committed adultery. He says, if a man looks at a woman, and and let's be clear, what's usually applied to both man and and woman is spoken of as applying to man. So what this means is this applies to women too. If, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, if a woman looks at a man lustfully, she commits adultery in her heart. This is a human problem. It's a problem for all of us. And raises that question, what qualifies as lust? 
Jesus does not mean if you notice someone else's beauty, you're lusting. Jesus actually defines what he means here. Jesus defines lust as committing adultery with someone in your mind. Now, the Pharisees believe this was a problem. The Pharisees believe the mind was full of lust and the way to deal with lust, this is in the Talmud, the way to deal with lust was to avoid looking at whatever it is that tempts you. Their focus was not on the heart, but on the outward circumstances that might tempt you to lust. So, according to the Pharisees, you had to avoid all possible tempting situations. Here's the problem with that now. Today, in this world, you could not do that unless you lived in a hole. And the early church could not do that in the Grecan-Roman world because that world was even more salacious than the world in which we now live. Now, surprisingly, you wouldn't think this, surprisingly, the ancient Greeks and Romans also thought lust was a problem with a certain class of women. Uh, and they had to also come up with and try to deal with lust uh, uh, for who they considered to be respectable women. You should not lust after respectable women, so what do we do? They tried to deal with lust by hiding their respectable women. So those women of higher class, they were confined, they were kept in the house. If you went out in public, you needed to be covered up, veil, uh, in order to hide all of that beauty. Because, as one Greek philosopher wrote, Men can't help themselves. Men can't help their problem with lust after women, so it is up to women to keep their beauty from men. Now, uh, historically and today, Muslims do the same thing. And historically, the church has adopted this pharisaical way of dealing with lust. Cover up or men will lust after you, and it's not their fault. They can't help it. This is how unbelievers have always dealt with lust. From legalistic Pharisees to legalistic pagans to legalists in the church. It's this thing, I, 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 will, I will lust. I can't control it, so it's your job to cover up so I don't lust. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not instructing us with tricks and life hacks to control your outward circumstances so you don't come across objects of lust. Uh, and Jesus does not blame women. Jesus doesn't avoid women. And Jesus is not instructing us to retreat from the world. We are not supposed to be like the Amish. We are not supposed to be like Mennonites. We are not supposed to be like radical Puritans. We are supposed to be in the world. And if you remember what Jesus just said, just you know, this is where you want to read the whole Sermon on the Mount all at once. We're supposed to be in the world and we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. In all of these, you have heard it said passages, Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He, he's contradicting the Pharisees. And, and we're going to see this more and more as we go along, he is also contrasting the old covenant situation of Israel which was a theocratic kingdom separated from the pagan nations. Intentionally, that, that, was the, that was the point. They were separated from the pagan nations. That situation is different from the new covenant church's situation. We are a pilgrim community in the world. 
And we are supposed to live in the world, and we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have to look at, Jesus is giving this to the church, and you have to look ahead to the church's situation. That Jesus is giving this stuff to the church, and the church will be in the world, no retreating. And what Jesus wants to do is, he wants to fill our hearts, and he wants to fill our minds with something better than lust, and it's not legalism. It's love. That's the big implication here, is we want to have the mind of Jesus for other people. Uh, uh, When you love someone like Jesus, you don't lust after them. When you love someone, you do not objectify them. You see them for who they are. They are a who. They're not a what. They're not a thing. They are a person That person is someone's daughter. That person is someone's son. That person is someone's mom. That person is someone's dad. That person is someone's wife. That person is someone's husband, maybe. Whoever it is, that person is the image of God. When you love someone like Jesus loves us, you don't reduce them to this thing that exists simply for your self-gratification. You want to care for them. And we can be super clear here. This doesn't mean we ignore modesty. Like, we're not saying it's okay to dress or to act or to talk in such a way to try to tempt others to lust after you or to envy you. But the problem here that Jesus is pointing out, the problem is not needing more rules. The problem is a heart problem. You need, we need to look at others like they're human beings. You need to realize the person that you're lusting after is not the first time they've been lusted after. That some of the people you lust after, lust after uh, they've been abused. And they've been treated like nothing more than an object. And some of, some of them have come to believe that they really are nothing more than an object, and they degrade themselves. I mean, you, we wonder why, why do some people dress the way they dress, or why do some people act the way they act? Uh, because they've gotten to that point where that's who they think they are. They've so degraded themselves, and, and they treat themselves like they were less than human because that's what they believe about themselves. And people will say, pe- people will say this all the time, uh, isn't, uh, isn't this stuff of, of this sexual relationship and sex, isn't this a personal and private matter? Like, what I do with my body is my business. What Jesus says here, it's actually impossible to engage in sexual immorality and sexual sin, whether it's done actually, physically, or it takes place in our minds. It's impossible to engage in this sin without cheating someone else of what is rightly theirs. That this sexual sin is not only an offense against God in your own body, it is to defraud your brother or your sister because you take what is rightly theirs. Uh, there's, uh, there's this photograph, uh, picture, uh, of a young group of men in their twenties and thirties. And they're, you look at this picture, they're very nice looking. They're clean, you know, they're clean cut, dressed nice. They're joking. They're they're laughing. They're enjoying one another. Uh, and, and then you look down at the caption and it says this, staff break at Auschwitz. 
It's a picture in a museum of the staff at Auschwitz during World War II, and they're taking a lunch break. They're having a good time. They're taking a lunch break from slaughtering Jews. And they sit, and they laugh, and they joke. At the same time, they're doing what they're doing. Uh, the point is, our lives can look one way on the outside, where we look ethical, and the truth is that what lies beneath is so very dark. And it raises that question, okay, so what do I do about lust? And Jesus gives us the remedy. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Rip it out of its socket and throw it away. If it's your right hand that causes you to sin, cut the thing off and throw it away. And you can imagine, as Jesus is saying this, some jaws are dropping, drooping, and some eyes are widening, and some heads are shaking. And maybe, maybe, maybe one disciple starts re- reaching for his eye, and another disciple like, you know, like, just listen, wait, he's still talking. Uh, it, but if they had remembered their Old Testament as they're hearing this stuff, the eye is talked about as knowing evil. And the hand is this figure for doing evil. And you've got to remember that the one Jesus is giving these commands to, they are Christians. He's giving these commands to his church, to people who profess to believe the gospel. These are people who can obey this stuff. But to cut off your eye, to cut off your hand, remember what he's speaking. In each of these, you've heard it said, He's using a form of speech called hyperbole. This is hyperbole. And hyperbole d- doesn't mean, ah, that therefore you don't have to take it serious. Remember, the point of hyperbole is to underscore the gravity and the seriousness of what is being said. This is stuff we are supposed to do. The question is, what are we supposed to do? To cut out your eye, to cut off your hand, is to confess your own sin. It is to confess that you do have a problem. The point is that God's people will hate lust as if it was the same as actual adultery and hate it so much you would rather suffer the loss of an eye. You hate it so much you'd rather suffer the loss of a limb than live with lust in your heart. It's hyperbole, but the point is God's people, we care about lust like we care about adultery and we deal with it, and we suffer with it. Now, uh, objectors, uh, people who object to all that uh, the church has to say about ethics and and sexual morality, uh, will point out that this God that we talk about, it is a God of judgment. Listen to all the stuff about hell. It's a God of judgment, uh, not love. This is typical judgmental Christian stuff, which is just on the, just on the surface of it, that kind of objection it, it is in and of itself ironic and hypocritical because it is in and of itself judgmental. But okay, uh, and, and yet it is a worthwhile objection and it is worthy of conversation. We should pay attention to those kinds of objections. Uh, and, and do some good forced self-reflection because there are undoubtedly, there are for sure people who would consider themselves, who would label themselves conservatives. You know, whether uh, we're talking politically or socially or economically, 
who do believe that they are morally superior to others. Loved ones, that must never be something we consider about ourselves. As we hear this stuff, do do you do do you hear this? Uh, listening to these verses, adults, young and old, uh, are any of us? Do, does this stuff get you like pierce you to the core? Either because of failures in the past, failures in in the present, either physical, mental, both. I mean. Is there not that spirit of Pharisee in our hearts that we're struggling with, a voice in our head that says, thank you that I am not like the person that Jesus is warning about? Uh, There are plenty of people who are moral, who are conservative about sex, and they have uh, conservative opinions uh, about this stuff, and they feel really good about themselves. Um, Plenty of people, plenty of people, and not most people, are working to appease God, to appease themselves. I do all this work, and of course, I expect God to hear me, God to answer my prayers, look at my life, look how I'm doing, look at the good I do in society, Uh, look how I'm appeasing people. That's appeasing people in God through your morality and this self-holiness stuff. But Christians do not live a life of holiness thinking that it will appease the world or thinking that it will appease God. Because we cannot appease God with our holy lives because we are not morally superior to anyone. We too are sinners. We want to be the ones when the question asks what's wrong with the world, we say, me. We cannot appease God. Only the morally superior can appease God. And there's only one morally superior person who has ever lived. And it's Jesus. And the truth is, only Jesus can appease God with his holy life because Jesus is the only morally superior person. And he's morally superior because he's morally perfect. And what we need is, we need Jesus to appease God for us by living for us and dying for us and dying for our failure. And that is what he's done. And that's the good news of the gospel. It is Jesus who has appeased God for us, and now we live to love him and please him. Uh, This is an old theologian in with this. uh, Old theologian who put it like this, uh, unless you've experienced the grace of God, unless you know that you're not saved by your work, but that, but that God embraces you because of Jesus' work, then when you go to help those in need, when you strive to live a chaste life, whatever you do, as good as it seems to be you're doing, it's out of self-interest. If you don't know the grace of God, it's about you. You are never helping, serving, loving the other person out of sheer joy of the person or sheer joy of the work. You're always doing it in order to get something from God or to get something from people or to take something from another person. It's impossible to do anything of true virtue unless you've experienced the grace of the gospel. But if you know that God loves you because of what Jesus has done, if you know that God has embraced you because of his work, that you're in, that you're accepted, now when you move among God's people and you move out into the world, you live this holy life, you do the work for the sheer joy of pleasing your Lord and Savior who loves you. You don't love people in order to get something from them. You don't, quote, love people in order to take something from them. 
You love people because you love them because you were loved. Uh, we are not called to appease the world. We're called to love the world. And we're called to be in the world with Jesus' love. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we give you praise. We give you thanks for your gospel. And we give you thanks, uh, Lord, for, for your word uh, that tells us of the life that we're supposed to live. And we give you thanks that you are at work in us, that you've done what we can't do, and that you're at work in us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, truly changing us, uh, Lord, sanctifying us more and more into your image. Lord, even if we don't feel it, as we trust by faith that you are at work in us, changing us, sanctifying us more into your image, bless us to look at other people the same way, to have that same trust, that, Lord, that you are at work in your church, sanctifying, transforming people more into your image, and bless us to behold them as image bearers of God. Lord, as we look out into the world and we look at the lost, may our hearts bleed and ache for them. Lord, that we would not abuse people, that we would not misuse people, that we would love people uh, uh, and see them, even though fallen, even though lost, they are still image bearers. Uh, Lord, in, in desperate need of love, move us out into the world to love people with that kind of love. Lord, to hold out your grace to them. Father, make this the kind of place where people can come and, and not feel shame, Lord, and uh, 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 not feel less than human, but come and hear that God loves them. Father, this would be the kind of gathering where anybody could come and hear that they are loved by God and they are loved by us. Bless us, Lord, uh, to fulfill those commandments, to love our Lord and Savior, and to love others as we love ourselves. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.